Well, good morning and welcome to Rock Hills. I do want to echo what Heather and Josh said and just say that we are glad to have all of you here. It's an honor to worship with you on any Sunday morning, but especially today, we're happy to have you guys here with us. And if you're here today for the first time, we welcome you. If you're watching online, we want to welcome you as well. We're starting this new series today, looking at Romans 8, and honestly, it's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. So I'm excited to see what God will speak to us in the midst of all of this. I don't know how many of you guys have experienced uh, maybe one of the uh, most adrenaline-inducing experiences that I've experienced in my life, and that is teaching your teenagers how to drive. <laughs> Anybody else ever been through that? I mean, you don't have control. I mean, you try to have control because you're hitting that you know, imaginary break and you're tense and you're slow down, slow down, turn and you're trying to let them know and really you're just stressing them out even more, right? But you're in this situation where you've got your teenager who's got the power but not necessarily the knowledge and certainly not the experience and you've just given them an overwhelming amount of power. We taught my oldest when we still uh, lived in Rockport down on the coast. So it was a small town but still, it was anxiety-producing, right? And we, we had some fun trips through the ditch and, and such, learning to make the turns, right? But then my second child, we got to learn in San Antonio. And we got to learn on the, the fun little joyride called 281, you know, and those turnarounds and all that sort of thing. And it was just a bit of an anxiety-producing experience, now, that being said, I still have two kids left. I had the girls first, and now I've got two boys, and both boys want to learn how to drive. We will certainly be teaching one of the boys, maybe not the other boy, but we're going to teach one of the boys here in just a few years how to drive as well. And this particular boy loves adrenaline anyway, and so... I, I'm just already praying and begging God for mercy and grace. But here's what I can't imagine doing. I can't imagine just saying, Jack, here's the keys. Go learn, buddy. Experience is your best teacher. And just letting him go. You know, like the, the old school way of teaching a kid to swim, where you just throw him in the pool and say, learn, you know, and, and out of panic and desperation, they learn to swim. I can't imagine teaching my son to drive in such a manner. But I think to some degree, we're in that situation in our Christian walk. Because we've been given this, this great gift and this great power. Because the grace and mercy of God has been made available to every single one of us. And if we look at the scripture, the, God says we can walk in this incredible life. And it's like we've, we've got the keys and there's incredible power that's available to all of us. But it's almost like somebody's thrown us the keys and we're sitting in the car and we don't quite know what to do from here, right? We've got belief in, in our head, in our hearts. Something has happened that has caused us to, to want to embrace the gospel and to embrace what Jesus has done for us. And maybe you're not even at that place. Maybe you're still trying to figure all of this out. But if you've come to that place where you've, you've embraced this faith called Christianity, 
But then maybe you're going, but what do I do next? Maybe you even look at your life and you realize, you know what? I haven't moved anywhere in the last year, in the last five years, in the last 10 years. I'm still in the same spot that I was five years ago, 10 years ago. I'm still struggling with the same things that I struggled with. I haven't seen my life really advance that much. I'm just here in this car believing. And my prayer as we go through Romans 8 is that we will learn how Paul says that we can move forward in our faith and we can see the power of God move in our lives because we have this grace and this mercy that God has given us, but we're not supposed to stay here in the same place. God wants to move in and through every one of our lives. And Paul understood this. So before we jump into Romans chapter 8, I want to give you just a little bit of the backstory of the man who gave us this wonderful book of Romans. And that's Paul. Before he was Paul, his name was Saul. So you'll probably hear me use those interchangeably. But I want to give you a little bit of the backstory of this guy and some of the encounters that he had before we are going to encounter him as he pens this powerful book. We're going to meet Paul or Saul in the book of Acts. And really, we meet him in the midst of uh, a very, very tumultuous situation. Because it would have been one day, a few chapters into the book of Acts, when there's, there's this small synagogue on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And in this small synagogue, people would have gathered together to worship within the Jewish faith, much like we're worshiping here today, sitting around on stones in an amphitheater type of synagogue. And as would have been their custom, they would have taken out the scrolls to read from the Old Testament. And as they're, after they read from the Old Testament, different leaders, different people of faith would have been able to stand up and share the message of God. And on this particular day, there was a young man. He was probably nervous as the scrolls were being read. And as they were rolled back up, he approached the lectern in the front of that synagogue. Probably sweating a little bit, he looked at everybody. He would have told them about their faith, of which he was also part of, going back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Saul and David. And then he would have got all the way up through the prophets. He would have reminded them about the Messiah that they had all prophesied about. And then he would have looked at all of them and said, and you got it wrong because you killed the Messiah. This Jesus that you've all heard about, he was the Messiah. And instantly, this would have produced an uprising within that synagogue. As a matter of fact, they would have gone and gathered this young man whose name was Stephen. They would have taken Stephen and they would have began dragging him, causing a scene through the streets of Jerusalem. They're now going to head to the Sanhedrin, which would have been like their supreme court. 71 elders, experts in the law, would have sat around in this Sanhedrin. 
And they would have dragged Stephen through the streets, yelling and screaming at him, dust flying up, voices flaring, onlookers gathering as the crowd got bigger and bigger and bigger until they dragged him here to the Sanhedrin and they would have thrown him down in front of the high priest. The high priest would have looked at his accusers and said, what is the problem here? And they would have said, this man has blasphemed our faith. This man does not deserve to live for the words that he is saying. The elders would have looked at him and asked him to explain himself. And he would have responded, again, referring back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He would have referred to Moses and he would have referred to Joseph, Saul, and David. And then the prophets who spoke of the Messiah to come. And again, he would have looked at all of these elders, the experts in the law, Pharisees. said, his blood is on your hands for you have killed the Son of God. And when he said that, that would have been the end of it right there. His execution would come swiftly and surely. Stephen knew that this was a no-win situation. The Bible tells us that he simply looked to heaven and he said, I see Jesus at the right hand of God. And at that, all of those elders that we saw would have began to stand up, take off their cloaks, and warm up their throwing arms, and grab some stones. Because they were about to take care of Stephen right there. As they did that, there was one particular Pharisee who was in that bunch. A young, hotshot expert of the law. We see in Scripture... He began to go around to the other elders that were in that room who were indignant at the moment. Let me hold your cloak for you. Here's a rock. Let me hold your cloak for you. Here's a rock. And he began to gather their cloaks. This man was Paul, who at this time we know as Saul. He was a young man. He would have been at this time, he probably would have been about half the age of some of the elders who sat around in that circle. But Paul, Paul was a young rising star in Jerusalem. He held a seat that many others longed for. He was not from Jerusalem. He was from a small town on the shoreline called Tarsus. Tarsus was known for its universities, its enlightened thinking. He came from a family of devout Israelites. They came from the tribe of Benjamin, and in the tribe of Benjamin, their greatest all-star from the old days in the Old Testament was King Saul, and that is who Saul himself was named after. He would have been educated in their universities. Not only is he an Israelite, but we see in Scripture that he is also a Roman citizen. The only way that you would have got Roman citizenship is if you had done great service in some way for Caesar, or if you were a family that was of great wealth, that the Roman government said, we're going to allow you in because we want you to be one of us. 
So Paul either came from a family of fame or of fortune. It's likely he probably came from both. They were able to send him to Jerusalem to advance his studies in Jewish law. He was able to study there, but not just study in any rabbinical school. He was able to study under Gamaliel. He was the leading rabbi in the first century. So basically, Paul, Saul, is your D1 scholar. He is the, he's the athlete that everybody wants to give the scholarship to. Right? He's Ivy League. He's got the pedigree. He's a hotshot expert. He's a Pharisee who at this young age is already sitting on the Supreme Court. And in this moment, as they drag Stephen up to the front in front of the high priest, Saul sees a great opportunity. Because this little group of people who follow this Jesus Christ, call themselves believers of the way these Christians, they've just been a pain in their necks for too long. And as Stephen is dragged to the front, Saul is going to see a great opportunity. It says that he's the one that gathered the cloaks and he is the one, this young man, who was able to oversee and okay the execution. Throw the rocks. Stephen was killed. And in this moment, a light bulb comes on for Saul. I can do this. I can get rid of these people who call themselves Christians. So for the next period of time, we don't necessarily know how long exactly Saul sets himself out to be the guy who leads the way. If you believe in Jesus, you better look over your shoulder because I am coming after you. We see that he would go knock on doors. I heard you were at one of the meetings. Do you know anybody who was at one of the meetings? Now, we didn't have terrorists in that day. But Saul... He caused terror. He would have people drug out of their homes, beat. He would have a hit list. He would have people murdered because of their faith. Likely bring a family out. Bring the father out. Have the wife and children beat in front of the father until he can deny the faith or not. That's the kind of terror that he was producing. He did this in Jerusalem to the point where all of the believers began to scatter. We saw this in the book of Acts. They began to scatter all over the region to where now Saul is going to say, he's going to go back to that same high court and say, hey, I've got a document for you right here. I want you to sign this to give me permission to now go out of Jerusalem and cover the entire region because I want to finish this. I want to make sure there are going to be no more people who are claiming the name of Jesus to be the Son of God. So they sign off on it. And Paul, Saul, is going to gather a handful of men to follow him. First town he's going to set off for next will be a town called Damascus. It's down the way, and believers have fled there to run for their lives so they could continue worshiping. Surely they had probably heard that Saul was on his way. They were probably scared, hoping that he wasn't going to be coming behind them. But sure enough, 
Here came Saul. A man of his nobility probably would have been on horse. Here comes a small army of horses. Men armed and ready to extinguish this movement. As he's on his way to Damascus, riding on his horse, there is going to be a bright light that shines so bright that it is going to knock him off of his horse and render him blind. He can't see anything. He just knows something traumatic has just happened. And as he's trying to get his senses about him, he hears this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus probably sounds like James Earl Jones, right? (laughs) He hears this booming voice in this. He's been blinded by this light. I don't know if he's in total darkness now or just total light, but either way, he can't see. And a voice comes out of heaven calling him by name and saying, why are you doing this to me? He doesn't have an answer. I mean, what good answer could he possibly give? So in that moment, God tells him, I want you to continue down the road. I want you to go to this particular street and this particular house, and I want you to wait there. So I'm sure terrified, bewildered, Saul is taken to this particular house on this particular street where he waits. Now there's another man in Damascus. His name is Ananias. He's, he's the pastor of this small synagogue that has gathered there, this small church of believers that has gathered in Damascus. And God also speaks to Ananias and says, hey, Saul's coming. And Ananias probably said, yeah, I was worried about that. He said, no, I want you to go to this house on this street. And there in the corner of the room, curled up in the fetal position, you'll find your terrorist. He'll be waiting for you. I want you to pray for him and you'll see me heal him. If I was Ananias, I don't know how how willing I would be to obey God in that moment, but he does. He goes over to this house, knocks on the door, says, God sent me here. He prays for Saul, and the Bible says that scales fall from his eyes, and he can see again. But I think in those three days that he was waiting in that house, terrified and bewildered, blind, I think he realizes that he hasn't just been physically blind for three days, but he's been spiritually blind for his whole life. What he was so sure about and so indignant about, he was wrong about. Because now he has met Jesus and he has seen the power of God. And now Saul is a transformed man. He is now going to become Paul. Ananias is going to take him to his church there in Damascus. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall in that church service? He's there worshiping with people who have scars on their backs because of his beating. People who have lost loved ones because of his okay to have them executed. And they show him grace 
and mercy. So here's Paul. He is a man who absolutely understands the law of God. And he also absolutely understands the grace and mercy of God. And from this point, he's going to let God begin to put the pieces back together in his life. And he is going to set off on a mission to all the towns we talked about as we studied the book of Acts. And he is going to be desperate to tell other people, look and see what I have found. You can find Christ too and you can know him. As he does this, it's not received well everywhere. He himself is beaten and imprisoned multiple times. And in the course of that, he is desperate to get back to Rome. Because he knows if he can get to Rome, the message will spread. Because it's the epicenter. If he can get his message to Rome, he knows that the church cannot be stopped. So he's desperate to get to Rome. So in the midst of being locked up and imprisoned and all these trials that he goes through, he pens this book that we now have called Romans. And in Romans, he's going to tell us everything that he wants us to know about what it means to find the salvation of God, to find the grace of God, to walk in the power of God. He's going to say, within this one book, I want to cram it all in so that the message of God can live forever on. Romans from front to back, chapter 1 all the way through is just full of such powerful stuff. Chapter 8 just happens to be one of my favorite chapters within that book. But here's Paul, radically transformed. He knows grace, he knows the law, and yet there's this tension there between the law, and when I say the law, God wants you to do this. God does not want you to do this, right? In order to be right with God, you have to do this. You can't do that. That's the law that we're talking about. Not just don't go over 55, right? I mean, we're not just talking about the law of the land, but the law of God. He understands the law of God. And he also understands grace and mercy and how Jesus has come to fulfill the law of God. But there's a tension there. Of I want to be this person that does the right things, but yet I still struggle in doing that. So leading up to chapter 8, this is the end of chapter 7. And I want to read this passage to you from the message. It says this, But I need something more. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel. And just when I least expect it, they take charge. I have tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? 
Isn't that the real question? And I don't know if you've ever felt like Paul, but I can tell you I have. I want to be this person that God wants me to be, but I always fall short. And then he continues in the last verse here, which is going to move right into chapter 8. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions, where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Here's Paul. He's sitting in his car. I've been given this gift of salvation, but yet I'm just stuck here. I don't know how to put it in gear and make it go, but he understands God's will is for me to use the power that I have to get to where I am supposed to go. And it's frustrating to be stuck in this spot and not be able to do what I know that I am supposed to do. Maybe you felt like that before. Stuck, frustrated, frustrated with yourself, trying to be who you should be, but you just can't do it. Romans chapter 8 is part of this letter that's written to us, to the people of Rome, to help us understand how we walk in the power that God has given us. Chapter 8 to me is a driver's manual. Okay, let's open it up and see how we can live this out. And the power that Paul is going to talk about is the power of the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus talked about this. You go to the end of the book of John, right? The last four chapters really is Jesus. He's not talking about the end of his life. He's talking about the helper that is going to come, the Holy Spirit that is going to come. And that's what Paul is going to talk about here as well. Now, I do want to give a little side note because as soon as I mention the word Holy Spirit, some of you may get a little bit nervous. Some of you may get a little bit excited, just depending on what church denomination background you may have and what you've come from. And we have the spectrum here at Rock Hills. We've we've got people from one end and the other and everywhere in between. And I've I've been in, in faith circles before where if somebody just prayed and said, God, we pray that your spirit would lead us today, we they would also oh, better keep an eye on that guy. He just prayed for the spirit to lead us. You know, it's about to get wacky up in here, right? And, and I've been in experiences before where the Holy Spirit has moved in incredible and in unspeakable ways, but it turned in some way to where instead of seeking God, we were just seeking experiences of the Holy Spirit, right? Come and do this. And it turned into just a show of experiences. And both of those miss whether we fear the Holy Spirit so we just choose to avoid Him, or whether we love the Holy Spirit so much that we're just seeking the fruit of the Spirit and the results of the Spirit, the experiences, but we're missing Jesus altogether, either way is wrong. But the Holy Spirit wants to be active and present in our lives. It's clear as we read the Bible that God sent the Holy Spirit because you and I, cannot do it on our own. We need the power of God. So here's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Real quick, the role of the Holy Spirit is to show us who God is, to show us who we are, 
and to show us what life is all about. So I encourage you, as, as you read the Word, let God speak to you through the Holy Spirit. Say, God, show me who you are. Show me who I am. Show me how I am to live my life. So, Romans chapter 8. You're saying we're just now getting to Romans chapter 8, Adam? Yes, I know. Um, so Romans chapter 8, it begins with this. So now there is no condemnation to those who belong to Christ Jesus. You may be more familiar with the translation that says, therefore, which means he's just referring back to everything that was in chapter 7 that we talked about. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. And I know there are some of you here who struggle with that voice in your head that says, you are not good enough, whether it's the shame of your past or just the way you see yourself. And I want to say that is not God. That is not how God sees you. The best illustration I can give you to kind of understand this in the old Testament, the world was condemned with a flood, right? God said, everybody's a sinner. They're not doing what I want. He speaks to a guy called Noah and says, I'm going to send a flood. They hadn't seen rain in generations, nobody even knew what rain was, but Noah builds this ark, and within the ark, they are saved from condemnation, right? The world was condemned, but everybody within the ark is not condemned because they are in the ark. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know you've messed up. I know you've had thoughts you shouldn't have thought, and you've done things that you shouldn't have done. But when God looks at you, he says, you are in Christ Jesus. You are not in the condemnation. You are in Christ Jesus. And when I look at you, I see Jesus. He continues, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the body we sinners have. And in that body declared an end to sin's control by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. He continues in verse 5. Those who are dominated by their sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile towards God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, and remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies. The same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, 
You have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. So Paul is telling us, you can get to where you're going. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem. We've got a sin nature that's living within us. And we've got the Holy Spirit that God says is now within us too. When we became Christians, it says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And also daily, we need to ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit within our lives. God says we can be everything that God desires for us to be. But it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit for us to get to where we need to go. So the real question is, how in the world do we hear that? I mean, Christianese, that that sounds pretty good, right? I need the power of the Holy Spirit. But the question is, how do I hear, how do I know what the Holy Spirit wants? Simple example here. It's probably not the greatest example, but hopefully it helps us understand this. Have any of you heard the sweet Tejano music that's been playing all morning long? Anybody else? Okay, one person has heard that. They're, they're tuned in. I don't know if you guys have heard this. I, I have a little help to help me out with this. For those of you under 40, and this is a Walkman, and uh, you, can, you can turn this, this on here, and um, there we go. And you have to t- tune in the stations. It's not like today, you know, where you just click a button on your radio. You got to tune it in just right. And if you tune it in to just the right spot, you might hear something. You might not. All right, well, I'm not getting you the sweet Tejano music that I promised. But here's my point. Illustration failed. I can't explain how it should have worked. Where if we tune into the right spot, you hear what you're supposed to hear. But the truth is, there have been radio waves within this building the entire time that you've been sitting here. And none of us have been able to hear them because we haven't had the ability to tune into them. The same is true on a spiritual front. You have the ability within you because of the Holy Spirit to hear and know everything that God wants you to hear and know and do and be everything that God desires for you. He longs to speak to you and through you through the Holy Spirit. We have to tune in to Him to do that. In other words, we have to be putting the Word of God within our lives We have a scripture memory um, sheet for you at the Connecting Center. I want to challenge you guys, memorize two verses each of these four weeks during this series from Romans. We'll make it simple and easy, and I bet you can put those into your mind, put them into your heart. But when we begin to put the Word of God into our lives, we can hear what God is saying. But Paul is concluding with this illustration talking about we have a sin nature and we have the Holy Spirit. The truth is, as we tune into God, we have to learn to hear the right thing because you're going to hear what you want to hear naturally. But the truth is, we've, it's almost like those old cartoons, you know, where you had the, 
angel on one side and the devil on the other side, and they would speak to you, kind of like this right here, you know, where I'm not going to tell you which one is the, the angel and which one is the demon, all right? But sometimes we have these voices within our heads that are conflicting, <laughs> that are conflicting, telling us one thing. I mean, it's like you, you want to hear, let's, let's see, the, this voice is crying out to you, this is who you should be and what you should do. And then the other voice on the other side is saying, no, 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 this is what you should be and what you should do. But here's the truth. Let me, let me have the final picture there. They're both you. It's your flesh that is talking to you. And your flesh will try to convince you to do anything to distract you from the spirit of God that wants to speak to you. Your flesh will convince you, oh yeah, God just wants you to be happy. God just wants you... And it will try to justify. But the truth is, God's spirit wants to speak to every one of us. We're going to close the service and we're just going to close it today by welcoming God to come and speak to us. We're going to make that our prayer as we worship. I am going to invite the prayer team up and any of our prayer team is welcome to join us as well as if any of our elders want to join us. I want to pray for this specifically. If you're struggling with condemnation and you're struggling to be able to move forward in what God desires for you, I want to pray for you that that condemnation would be broken off of your life. But if you would, if you would just join us, I'm going to ask Josh, Angel Josh over there, (laughs) to lead us as we just ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us today. There's nothing worth more
Father, for some of us, that's even right here in this room today. Lord, that you would invite us to follow you and you would forgive us of our sins because of the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we surrender to you. And Lord, we ask that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit. Father, the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead wants to go with us to work in the morning, wants to go with us to school this week, wants to live within our homes. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you to work in and through every part of our lives. In Jesus' name. 